Have you ever had a plan that didn't end the way you wanted? It can be quite frustrating, can't it? Sometimes even devastating. When our plans and our best efforts fail and our results are left unsatisfying. Even good efforts, efforts in ministry, efforts to organize our homes, efforts to make our businesses more successful, efforts to create a world, create our world a bit more filled with peace and joy. The ideal life can frequently get derailed. The Bible has a word for what we're searching for in that plan, in that desire. The word the Lord gives us is the concept of shalom. And it's described in this kind of way. It's, it's life as it ought to be. The life that was before the fall. And it's in the longing of each of our hearts. Last June I was thinking of shalom Maybe not defining it as such, but thinking about it in my own world. I was noticing the rampant amount of mosquitoes in our backyard, and I was very frustrated and aggravated. I hate mosquitoes. I hate to be outside when there's thick layers of mosquitoes around, and I was fed up to the point that I was going to figure out a way to handle them. So I looked online, tried to find some natural deterrents, and, and the, one of the primary ways I read about to take care of mosquitoes was to plant mint in your house. I thought to myself, that sounds like a great idea. So I did some research, asked some friends who were gardeners, went online. And the one caution that I found, pretty much exclusively online and, and from friends, the one problem with mint is that it grows everywhere. Once you plant it, it's, it unless you set boundary markers, I see some nods from some gardeners, it, it just grows all over. And I thought to myself, well, I, I just, I'm so frustrated with these mosquitoes. I told my, my poor patient wife, I am going to be planting mint everywhere. I mean, if I have to mow mint, at least it'll smell good. You know, I, we'll, just, we'll just let the mint take over. And so on kind of a uh, hyped-up, furious charge, I went to Ace Hardware. I bought six rather large plants that looked healthy that I could find, immediately planted them in the ground, started watering them, tended them for about a week, and then I went off to GA uh, in Dallas. And uh, when I got back, I was unfortunately greeted by some very worn-out pieces of mint in our yard. The sun or whatever had dried them out. They were withered. And I, I thought to myself, with all my fury, with all my best intentions, you know, the vast horde of mint that would be consuming my yard, I was left fruitless. <laughs> I was left with withered plants. Not even good for making tea. Not good for anything. Have you ever felt that way about your plans? I mean, I realize it's a silly story and, you know, I can go out and buy more mint. But all of us have plans and desires. And we're all longing for that shalom. And we're looking for what at least we think shalom ought to look like for us. Sometimes we call it the American dream and that feels like shalom. Sometimes it's Again, careers in, re in retirement or our family or even just the daily course of events. I feel like they should be shalom in our midst. 
even our health, we want to be our shalom. But David is telling us in this psalm, in Psalm 65, that satisfying shalom, the enduring joy of the Lord, doesn't come from our plans or our circumstances or even our health. Shalom comes only from him, the Lord God Almighty, the Most High. And even when everything around us and even inside of us feels like it's withered and fading, the Lord is our shalom. We're going to see that in this passage in two main ways, two points. It wasn't very shalom of me to to have two points, I realize. You normally have three, but, you know, two points. We must praise the Lord for the shalom of his restoration. That's the first five verses. And then 6 through 13 is that we must praise the Lord for the shalom of his providence. Let's look at how we praise the Lord for the shalom of his, his restoration. First, it's an amazing grace of our Lord that we must recognize in our text that he actually wants you to experience Shalom. That that's God's good and great desire for you. And that's what we see in these first verses, in verses one through five, that it's the Lord who brings shalom by renewing our lives in Him. Read with me, look in verse one. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. Now, this is hard for us to necessarily see in that phrase. Uh, but, but the phrase praise is due to you is a unique one. Uh, different translations will translate it differently. Uh, NIV says it praise awaits you. The NAS uh, gets more to what the, the text actually says, which is there will be silence before you. But if we were to literally trans- translate it word for word, it would be silence is praise to you. Sometimes we're called to loud and boisterous praise. And we need to be cheering and celebrating the goodness and greatness of our king. But there are also times when it's most appropriate for our praise to be silent before God. This kind of silence is a resignation to his lordship in our lives. It's about acknowledging that our lives and our plans, our health, everything about us belongs to him. And it's an acknowledgement that quiets the anxious voices in our minds. If you're anything like me, silence can be quite difficult. We want to speak. We want, want to share what we know. We want, we want to be heard. We want our voice to matter. And being silent actually entrusts our plans, our anxieties, our livelihood, our life to his sovereign will. This is especially important for those of us who may be in this room today, in this sanctuary, but may feel distanced from the Lord. Maybe the idea of praising God for you this morning is hard to think about. Maybe there's some plan or some aspect of your life in which you're disappointed, which you're struggling, having a hard time seeing the grace of God. 
And maybe you're feeling particularly weary. Or maybe you're here out of a sense of duty. Or maybe you're even angry with God. Puritan pastor Richard Allion wrote, Christians, bewail your lost conscience and let it be recovered. You see, relationships are interesting things. They're in constant movement. We live in a persistent state of transition in all of our relationships, whether we're growing closer together towards someone or drifting farther away, and we don't maintain a stagnancy. We may not see the level of our growth or even the level of our drift because they could be subtle shifts in our heart, shifts towards other things. But I think what Richard Allion, the Puritan pastor, is writing about is that he says, if you're struggling with your conscience and in your relationship with your God, then begin by mourning your numbness to him. Mourn and bewail that lost sense of consciousness towards God. Sit in silence before him. Wait on the Lord. Resign yourself to his will. That's what David's telling us in this psalm. Praise him through your silence. Praise him in the midst of your resignations. And know that even in your silence, that's not where the Lord will will keep you. But it's interesting that the way of shalom begins in this passage with silent resignation before our God. David is urging us to fixate ourselves before the Lord in our silence. And he continues to write, "You shall, uh, to you shall vows be performed. Again, it's a bit of an awkward phrase here in the English. But this is where we see shalom in the passage because the phrase literally translates to you shalom vows. It's a, it's a shalom in verb tense. To you make offerings that produce peace. To you do I bring restoration offerings of vows of my life. It's the same word in Exodus chapters 21 and 22, describing the the laws of restoration when an animal was perhaps stolen or or accidentally killed or a fire destroys a crop. They're designed uh, as offerings to other people to restore shalom, to restore things back to the way they ought to have been. I believe what David is stating in this section is that we find shalom, we find the satisfying, renewed peace when we praise him in our resignations and we turn our hearts under his reign, acknowledging our vows, our promises before him. So David continues in verse two. Oh, you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. For when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Do you hear the character of the Most High in this passage? That it's the King of Kings who operates the entire universe. That you and I were intended to image bear, but we, we've confounded and confused our image bearing. Often with our own plans and devices. We who've become weary and broken by sin, we have the ear of the creator of the universe. 
the righteous and holy one, deigns and delights to listen. And we praise him in our silence in verse 1. Because the Lord God silences himself to hear us in verse 2. The Lord hears us and he is the hope for us. To you all flesh come. It's not a universal statement. It's a declaration that only God hears prayers. And all flesh, all tribes, all nation will hear and come to the one true God. Because he's the only hope, the only light in the world. Why? Because our world is permeated by sin. The thing that destroys and pulls us out of shalom. David is being transparent with himself, with us about his sin. He knows that his sins prevail against him. And we, if we're honest and open about our own sins, we know that we are overwhelmed by our sins as well, too. In fact, the the phrase here is actually that they are not simply prevail, they overwhelm us, they overshadow us. Why? Well, because simple time and forgetfulness will never undo what our sin causes in the world. Sin produces death in God's shalom, and it has small and large ripple effects throughout that shalom. Thoughts that subtly reinforce lies or twist ourselves, twist our identities twists God's truth to our own end. Subtleties of a series of words that so quickly roll off our tongue that cut at the heart of someone we love. You can't undo that pain. Or actions and decisions decisions that lead to a fractured relationship that puts what is good and righteous aside. Or even the inactivity that does not enable the flourishing of of God's righteousness. We don't have the power to undo what was done. We can't counteract our sin. No sincere apology or most fervent act of repentance can undo the past. Yet David is telling us that we... While we cannot atone for our sin, it is the Lord who atones for his people. I mean, look at it again in verse 3. You atone for our transgressions. What David is pointing us to is that, that, that idea of being covered in the Septuagint. It's, it's referred to or it's translated the word for propitiation. David is pointing us to the atonement that the Lord himself brings over the sins of his people. I mean, think about it. It's the offended, the one who was sinned against, that undoes the sin and brings forgiveness to those who have sinned. David had an incomplete understanding as well of this restorative work, this restorative shalom that God brings. David had part of the story. 
But as we fast forward through God's history, we see the fullness of the atonement. We see that it wasn't the blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood that we are atoned and forgiven. The Apostle John writes, he is the propitiation for our sins. He is our shalom. He is the vitality of our lives through our resigned relationship with him as both king and brother that the withered and faded experience refreshment. David's saying we cannot find any other life, any other place. And that the good and great plans that we prepare and maneuver in the world may be wonderful, but none of them will give the lasting shalom that casts out and covers sin. It's our union to the Lord Jesus, the Most High, the one who hears our prayers. And we see this even more intently in verse 4. For not only does he atone for our sin, he chooses us, he draws us near I mean, this is, this is the, the idea of the prince and the pauper, right, by Mark Twain. We as the paupers are welcome into the king's palace, can sit and make decisions as the prince because the prince was cast out to live among the, the poor, to live in poverty. And this is what the Lord Jesus does for us. He comes into our world humbling himself even unto death, death on a cross, to experience the full weight of all our sins, to undo that which we have done. Jesus embraces that. Not because we're deserving, not because we're good, not because of anything in Psalm 65 that we've been able to offer or bring before God. It's because we are helpless. It's because we are failed. It's because we are withered and we are fading. And apart from him, we have no life. That's why he comes. That's why he draws us near. That's why we're atoned. And it leads David to say in verse 5, By awesome deeds, by awing your righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest of the seas. We praise the Lord because he brings us shalom through his own blood in his own work of restoration. The second point that we see in this passage is that the shalom of the Lord directs us to praise him for his providence. Now in this section, we don't necessarily see the word shalom, but we do see it described we see the sovereign providence of God in his might, and we see the sovereign providence in his abundant provision. David turns our attention in verse 6 from God's restoration and directs us towards the great work of providence through his creation. God's great strength is described in beautiful detail. I mean, read with me in verses 6 and 7. It says, The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. It's hard for me not to read this passage in light of Mark 4. 
which uh, ruling elder Danny Grant did a great job reading for us earlier in the service. The one that the disciples couldn't even recognize in their boat. They had to ask the question, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. They didn't know who was in front of them. They didn't know who they'd been walking with and learning from. But in that passage, the windstorm and the waves, they weren't confused by Jesus. They knew exactly the one who stills their roar. Creation itself recognizes the one who's over it. And in the beginning of the passage, we read it's the image bearers who need to uphold a vow. Creation doesn't need to uphold a vow. It eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. No, instead, we have a hard time seeing the might and provision of our Lord in our midst. We make vows because our hearts drift away from him. And yet the Lord, the Lord silences. He silences and stills the winds and waves because of our tumult. So that we might be eased. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear what David is saying? That so great is his love that he willingly silences the waters to even confound us with who he is when we don't understand who he is. You see, the disciples were left in an awe. Who is this one? And it's better to be left with that question of who is this Lord and have an awe of him and have a a delight in in being near him and even a, a, a fear of his great power and mercy than it is to pursue our own ends and to seek to live in our own plans in our own pursuit of shalom. See, it's our God, our God who cares for us that rejuvenates our souls. By his divine providence, we see as well his abundant provision. David notices that it's not uh, something that seems abnormal to us. It's something that should be recognized on a daily observation if we're careful. The ordinary seasons, the ordinary means of his provision and care. God tends to his creation. He loves it. In fact, if you look in verse 9, it says, you visit the earth, you water it, you greatly enrich it. The river of God, that's, that's the large river, is full of water, and you provide their grain For you've prepared it. God's in the active work of producing grain. He's in the active work of watering it because he visits the world. He's engaged. If we'd slow down at times, we perhaps might recognize and think through the sovereign might of him arranging all things in all places. His providential sovereign reign is in all things. And we can delight how he is at work moving in creation and how he's at work moving in us. Three times we see in this passage, verse 8, 12, and 13, creation is singing and overflows with joy. Why? Because of its Lord. Because the Lord's faithful love. Because he cares 
about what he created. David is encouraging us to be mindful of the Lord's work and praise him because he orchestrates all things by his powerful hand. While in seminary, I was privileged to take a class with uh, Dr. David Calhoun. Some of you might know that name. He's a professor emeritus now uh, of, of church history. He's an amazing man. Uh, I got to teach, I think, his last class he ever taught. He had uh, retired uh, only because his body had been riddled with cancer. And the pain that it caused him caused his inability to teach on a frequent basis. But he, he wanted to come back to teaching, and he wanted to teach uh, on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it was a small elective, and I got to, to audit it and sit in under his teaching. And, and uh, during it, I, I was um, kind of learning who he was as I was learning about the Westminster Confession of Faith. I hadn't had another class with him. But one class early in the semester, Dr. Calhoun looked terrible. I mean, you could see the pain that was on his face, the wincing that he would make. And he shared at the very opening of the class that he debated about canceling, that he was in such pain. But he told us, I was really debating it about canceling, but then I realized that I was teaching on chapter five, God's providence. And how he held all things together, including my body. And I knew I had to come and teach. You see, it's when we look at God's providential abundance, his faithfulness, his care. We have the strength to endure. See, we praise him because even though our lives and our bodies may feel so displaced and falling apart, it's the Lord who holds us fast. It's the Lord who draws us near. Our attitude must be that we're closer to him to trust all the more, even the more in the things that we ourselves cannot handle so that we might be fully and completely dependent upon him. It's that dependency that produces shalom, joy. Most recently, Dr. Calhoun was interviewed, or more, in, more recently, and uh, he was asked about his health, his struggles. This was his reply. My illness is just a part of who I am now, he says. It has been hard at times, but it's also helped me to see that what I believed is really true. The Lord works all things together for our good. And he does walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death. He's taught me patience and to trust in him. As long as he gives me the opportunity to remain here and do what I'm doing, I will love him and love my neighbor as myself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is shalom. This is the joy of the Lord that satisfies our hearts, that sustains us even in the midst of the most bitter challenges. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you that in the resignation of our lives, that you would conform our plans, our lives, our wills, our livelihoods, all of who we are to you.
Enable your gospel to refresh our aching hearts that we may rejoice in you alone. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the joy that was set before your Son to restore all things. And thank you that we, as your people, have been included in that joy that's come from heaven. May you be the joy of our lips and tongues this week as we seek to know your faithfulness throughout all of your creation. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.